Welcome everyone to Storytelling Podcast Week and our second session of the podcast weekend, <laughs> Rainbow Dad's live episode with Nicholas McInerney and special guest Frederick Davies. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Storytelling Podcast Week is a week of live stream sessions like this one with narrative nonfiction podcasters, audio drama and fiction podcasters from across our world and across our imaginations. If you have a chance, check out the recorded episode showcase featuring some exclusive and favorite episodes on the Storytelling Podcast Week channel for many of the podcasters participating, including including Nicholas McInerney and Rainbow Dads. You can also replay any of the live streams from the week on the Storytelling Podcast Week podcast channel. So make sure to download the Podbean app and follow the Storytelling Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time about all of the live streams and specially released episodes of the week. Storytelling Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience with Podbean Live, where podcasts come to life. For everyone listening, you can start your own live stream for free on Podbean. And to get your first 30 days of hosting for free, use the code STORY. And now we'll hand it off to Nicholas McInerney of Rainbow Dads. Hello and welcome. Welcome. Hello, Norma. How lovely to, what a lovely introduction. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Hello, Frederick. You're out there. Hi, Nicholas. Hi, everyone. Hello. Yeah. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Hello, everyone. It's lovely to be here, everyone. Um, I don't know how much you know about Rainbow Dads, but I'm going to give a very brief introduction to the podcast before we actually move on to the, the main event of the evening which is uh, a conversation with uh, Frederick uh, based around his book Fathers and Sons. So Rainbow Dads was set up about uh, two or three years ago when a a friend of mine said that we should try and do a podcast which explored stories of gay and bisexual dads. I uh, am a a, a writer and a teacher and I'd written a a series of radio plays for BBC Radio 4 called How to Have a Perfect Marriage, which were biographical. They were about a married man who came out uh, in uh, middle age and the consequences for his family. And I'd written a lot of radio drama, but I'd never had anything have quite the impact that this had. I wrote an article for The Times. Uh, I uh, did interviews for Gay Press. Um, it seemed to me I went on Women's Hour, which is a which is a which is a really high profile show in the UK. It seemed to me that there was a very big uh, audience out there. I did a podcast for The Guardian, one of our newspapers. That was also um, very successful. And after Philip Schofield came out at the the beginning of last year, um, I was whisked around various uh, news channels again to comment on this. So it felt to me that this was a really interesting area. And uh, we were very gratified with the podcast. We won some awards. We were nominated for another award. And we seem to have have a link in with an audience. And as a result of the six podcasts which are up on Podbean, you can find them there, uh, we would get phone calls from people. And one of the phone calls was actually from Frederick, uh, who I think contacted me to say, uh, to say that it had obviously made a big impact on him and, uh, uh, and that he was very inspired to create his own, uh, his own produced to uh, 
So, uh, and then he uh, wrote uh, his book, and uh, this is what we're going to discuss uh, this evening. So, Frederick, welcome. Thank you. Um, how are you feeling? Uh, it's my first podcast, so I am a little bit nervous, but um, I'm also excited. It's a great opportunity, so mixed emotions for me. Good, good. I know we've discussed a little bit about how we might approach this, so uh, so let's just leap right in. Um, I uh, got your book, and I read it today in order to make some notes for this uh, podcast, for this interview, and I want to quote you something that you uh, said right at the very beginning quite close to the beginning of the book. You said, for a long time, I was blind to the subtle signals I was receiving, signals that were telling me to make changes in my life and become the person I was meant to be. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your family background and how that shaped a sense of who you were and your sense of your own sexuality. Yes. Um, I grew up in a very Victorian household, so my parents were very strict they didn't talk about sex. It, it wasn't something that I felt comfortable bringing up um, with them as a topic. Um, so um, it was a very, um, it was a small world. I lived just outside London, um, but actually my world was small and my life experience was, was very small. So I wasn't really open or I didn't have experience of, of the wider world. This was also, if I go back, it was growing up in the 70s. No internet, no social media. My world was my family, my school, my neighbourhood. Um, I wanted to fit in with other children uh, in my class, uh, in my year group. Um, I didn't realise that being gay was even a thing. I know that sounds very naive when I say it now, and I almost can't believe that, um, that I, I, I say those words. But actually, I did, people say to me, also, you, it was an option and you didn't choose it. No, I didn't know it was an option to be chosen. That's interesting because you had this lovely description of your first stirrings when you looked at a teacher and you described the teacher as intriguing. <laughs> That's right, because I yes, because I didn't realise that what I was feeling was the start of attraction. Yes. So yes, intriguing. I was drawn to this uh, to this male teacher. There were things about him that interested me, but I didn't. They were the labels that I used in my own head. Um, attraction and emotion were definitely not words that I would have used. And your parents and your extended family you had no connection with any obviously gay people at that time no none no absolutely not so I didn't have any role models and I think that's really really impacted me now on my journey because I want to be that role model that I never had and what was interesting about the 70s was that the only gay presence that we were aware of in the media tended to be uh, characters who would be uh, characterised as being particularly effeminate. So I'm thinking Larry Grayson, I'm thinking of John Inman. For me, the kind of men that I always found attractive, bigger, burlier guys, you would never see them on television. Um, so the only models that I had to look to are, as I said, uh, on a very particular caricature 
And I guess that must have been the same for you. Exactly the same. Um, Dick Emery, yes, those TV celebrities, I felt I had nothing in common at all with them. I saw nothing in them that, uh, that reminded me of myself and, uh, and my life. So, no, for me, they were just a character. Did music play a part in your early life? For me, I was at a boarding school. And so when Bowie came on, you know, Ziggy Stardust, and you saw that famous top of the pops where he puts his arm around Mick Ronson's shoulders, you know, Bowie declared he was bisexual. That seemed to represent a, a world of escape where I might have gone. And of course, then punk happened and disco, and that was a huge thing for me. Did music have a a part to play in your early life and was it a, was it a way of escape at all um i'm not sure that it, escape is the word that i'd use and i'm once again i'm not sure that i saw myself in those characters those those musicians those stars but i loved the village people so actually the writing was on the wall from that point wasn't it i mean i should have worked you- it out as i said the signs were there it was the leather man, wasn't it? Let's be honest. <laughs> for me, for me, it yes. was the leather man. But in a sense, I mean, they are, you know, they were very deliberately put together and they were all caricatures, weren't they? Of kind of masculinity. Did you make no connection with, with, with the gayness over the, over the um, village people at all? Um, I saw it. I saw them as fun. I, I definitely saw them as entertaining. They were vibrant. They were full of life. The songs were amazing. So I saw lots and lots of positive things that I enjoyed. But once again, there was no labelling. That's fascinating. So in a sense, you might have been absorbing some of these things slightly more subconsciously. I think you're right. You have a brilliant... brilliant, I don't know whether... I'm going to talk about things that maybe you've forgotten you've written about, but I'm really interested. There's one particular incident as a child. You talked about flying a kite. Yes. Yes. And, and and not getting it right. Is that correct? Not being able to fly it properly. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And your father chastising you and you feeling really humiliated by that. Yes. And actually, that is such a poignant story that that kite features on the cover of the book. Because yes, it, it does. It does. It was really, really such um, an experience for me because he made me feel that I was useless. My brother was, is much more practical. I'm not particularly good at hand and eye coordination. I'm not a sportsman. Yes. And I struggled with the kite. I had to try and get the kite off the ground. I, I had two strings. It was a windy day. I had to try and do yeah. the maneuvers and I struggled with the whole thing. And rather than my dad, well, he started off actually being patient but after a while, his patient, uh, patience wore thin. Uh, it's very yeah, interesting. He, because he chastised me. It's very interesting you say that, Frederick, because I have a very, I also have a story about a kite when I was a child and getting the kite up in the air and then deliberately letting go of the string so that my father had to run after it and, and, and save it. And it's, it's just interesting that I don't, I don't know what these little events, what they say about our family dynamic. But isn't it interesting how it's a kite that becomes yes. the, the, the means by which we, 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 we remember these particular moments? Yeah. Uh, very interesting. So another question. Were... Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Um, I think um, this also, when I look back now, 
I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to be a regular boy in, my, in the school, in my family, doing what other boys did. And I think subconsciously, I knew I was a little irregular. And so that kite story, that was just one occasion when, when my difference was highlighted. So I think as well as not being good at it, I think it was, yeah, it, it was bringing something, it was showing me other issues, underlying issues. That's interesting because I've got another quote here that I'm going to quote back at you, which is relevant to this. You wrote, I'm someone who has always had a high expectation of myself and others. So I felt that my behavior and the subsequent feelings of stress were completely normal. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I want to ask, ask you another question. It's really interesting. You know, um, you're a successful man. You've done well for yourself over life. but You didn't get a university. Um, was there a reason for that? Um, a little bit um, following on from my earlier my earlier answer. Um, life was different in the seventies, um, um, or the early eighties. By the time I left senior school, there there wasn't the expectation that there has been in latter years that if you were bright, you'd go on. If you were going to be a doctor or a lawyer, then yes, of course. But actually, there were loads of jobs that you could do with with six o levels if you were bright um, and i decided that i wanted to go and work in the city i wanted to work in financial services and they were very happy to accept people with six o levels and you could you could go in and improve yourself and, and you could get on so actually i didn't see you see the need to go to university and actually in my career it really hasn't held me back i know that's not the same now i recognize it's, it's interesting it's interesting because I think that when I arrived at university, there were people busy coming out all around me. I was incredibly admir admiring of them. And it seemed to me that you, that was one of the roles of a university was to um, uh, create a, an opportunity for people to discover themselves away from home. And uh, that was very, very, that's a very powerful part of that university experience. But going straight from school into the work environment, maybe that that might have cut that opportunity off for you to 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 deal with your sexuality at, at a slightly younger age i agree just that, my yeah, speculation I, I, just my speculation no no i think you're right but i also made my situation worse by going into a very misogynistic male dominated environment so actually i couldn't have gone anywhere worse yes in terms of it's coming out if, it's fascinating it's almost as if you found somewhere to hide that is very has a very particular mass kind of masculine environment, uh, and and you can kind of hide in it and said hide in plain sight. How yes. was what were you? What was your sex life back then, uh, Frederick? How did your sexuality express itself? You know, you met Karen. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting aspect to your book. You don't talk in the first half of the book. You don't talk about sex at all, almost. So I have no idea whether you had a successful sex life with Karen, whether there were other women or whatever. And I'm interested about that. How was your sexuality expressing itself as you went into, went into your first job? I was definitely late having sex, um, definitely later than, um, than people now that, uh, that I talk to. Um, I enjoyed it. I didn't, I didn't have that many girlfriends. Karen was one of the was a one of the first few, uh, yes. and actually the sex wasn't really 
that important to me at that time. Now, when I look back, I think, I think it's really important to to acknowledge that some of different parts in our life, sex can take on a different role and a different level of significance. And you talk very, actually, talk very lovingly about your ex-wife in terms of the intimacy that you actually had together. But it didn't strike me as that, as that that it was being a relationship that was driven by a kind of sexual uh, need. It was something that was it was more low key. Correct. I think uh, that's, and, that's, and, that's true. And that's and that's that's absolutely fine. But you were also somebody who was a self-confessed stress bunny. Yep. And de dealing with OCD. Um, and you, well, this is something that we want. I want to talk about. You were in the midst of what I've just described as one of the most passive-aggressive family dynamics I think I've come across for a long while. Um, so tell me a bit about how your family relationships affected your mental health. Oh my goodness! I'm going to start off by saying that at the time, I didn't realise that they did. This has really come to me in later years, this, um, this realization. But also, during the time that I've written the book, when I had to go back and analyze so many aspects of my early life that I'd either forgotten about deliberately, decided not to remember, or just completely locked away. So I think... Uh, did you lock I've stuff realized... away? Did you think you locked stuff away? Because I certainly think I did. Oh, my goodness. It was triple yes. locked. It was in a wooden chest. It was triple locked <laughs> with a pile of bricks on the top. <laughs> pile of bricks behind, behind a stone in a cave somewhere where you couldn't find it. Exactly. Correct. Yes, yes. Um, Correct. But Correct. You, you, had, you've, you, have, you have, you had, and I, you have con continued to have, excuse me, I'm stumbling a bit now, complicated relationships with both your father and your son, obviously reflected in the title of the book. Um, and you were caught in the middle of, when you got married, in the middle of a family dynamic that could only be described as massively dysfunctional, even by the standards of the English middle classes. Would you Correct. agree? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But you, you, we'll deal with the situation that we're in. And actually, I was so... I couldn't step back. I couldn't step back and take a look because I was, I was too deep. I was just pushing my way through the weeds. I, I wasn't able but, to be analytical about my own situation. And actually, I didn't have that many people to talk to about it either. But also what strikes me, Frederick, is that you were the one who was managing it. You were managing the fact that your in-laws weren't speaking to each other. You were managing the fact that your parents disapproved of, uh, that some of your in-laws disapproved of who you got married to. It seemed to me that you were rushing around I'm thinking of a load of plates spinning, trying yep. to keep all those bloody plates spinning and not. And also that means in a sense, you don't have to sit down and look at yourself because you're too busy trying to solve other people's problems. Correct. I think you're absolutely spot on there. Yes, I had an yes. awful lot of plates in the air. And also looking back, I think in those days, I was definitely more of a people pleaser. <sighs> This is very, I think this is very interesting because I certainly recognise that myself. I sometimes think, as I've grown older, it's served me well in certain contexts, but in other contexts, it's always meant, ironically, given the fact that my mother always used to accuse me of being selfish, it has also, in a strange way, made me absolutely put other people first because I didn't want to create a kind of unnecessary upset. 
I agree. Um, now, was it that I didn't want to bring attention to myself? When I when I look when I analyze that now, I didn't realize that at the time. But was was this my subconscious protecting me in some way? I th- I th- when I read reading your account, it come that comes across quite strongly. It feels to me, um, you were at the centre of a complex family structure, and you were working hard, building a family, saving money. You were very bringing up children. You say, and I totally get it. You say I can state with absolute certainty that these years were a happy time in my life, bringing up kids. And um, I absolutely agree. I loved bringing up my two children, and I didn't regret anything around that. Um, but it was extremely busy, wasn't it? It was extremely busy, especially I, I, was, I was working long hours, but I was also trying to sort out these dysfunctional family dynamics. So let's talk about the Velvet Rage. I think that's a good place to introduce this. You've, you know the book I'm talking about, don't you? Yes. The Ellen Downs book. Now, he's Velvet Rage, which for our listeners is a book by an American um, psychotherapist um, called Growing Up Straight in a Gay World. And his, he has a thesis that as, as get young gay men, we have um, a masculine role model, which is our father, um, which we feel we have failed in some respects, because we can't live up to his expectation of what a heterosexual man should be. And as a result, there is a concomitant um, uh, excess in gay life. We achieve more, we drink more, we take more drugs, um, we sleep with more partners. There is a, a, a way of trying to compensate for that. Does that ring a bell? Does that strike a chord with you, uh, Frederick? Definitely one when I started my, my gay life, when I came out, yes, I was like the kid in the candy shop. I burst out of the closet and I wanted to do everything all at once. Friends said yes, to I can, me I know at that, that time, <laughs> yeah. yeah, friends said to me at that time, you've clearly been on the fast track program because I'd managed to achieve in two years what others had taken 10 or 15 years to experience. I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. I was, you know, I got my gay PhD in about 18 months because I, <laughs> I, 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 I came out and I said, I'm going to experience this and this and this. And even the, even the sexual things I felt a little ambiguous about but was kind of fascinated by. I thought, you know what, I'm going to try that. Um, I'm going to embrace this lifestyle. So I absolutely, uh, and no, that's I so interesting. I didn't hold back. And that, it's so interesting because actually, when reading the early account of your life, you come across, forgive me for saying this, as quite prim and a very sort of virginal. <laughs> I agree. Uh, and I put, I, I got a note here where you really that naive, um, but I think what it was possibly is this self is defense is a defensive uh, way of. Of, 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 of keeping the walls up around you so you don't have to face that, re- that real uh, reality uh, and, and then think of what the consequences are going to be as a result of that. I agree. I, I think I was definitely keeping my head below the parapet. Yeah, yeah. And then you met a friend. You became a trigger. And it's interesting. I think there are these key relationships this friend called Peter. And it's so yes. interesting that he was, he sounds like he was really, he sounds like he was really wonderful and didn't force the issue, but knew your heart better than yourself. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And he'd trodden that path several years before me. So he was my role model. And interestingly, uh, he's quite a sick man at the moment, so I have not been able to see him recently. But I was able to send him a copy, a link to, to my book, and he read that, and he said he, was, he absolutely loved it, and he never realised until he saw the text what a fundamental part in he played in my coming out story. Well, I think we he should acknowledge... To that. Mm. Well, I think we should acknowledge what he did for you. He facilitated something for you, but not in a predatory or a uh, uh, abusive way. He, he gave you an opportunity to to uh, be yourself. And um, I think that's a, a, a tremendous uh, act of friendship. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was so supportive. I definitely needed someone. When, when, well, first of all, it was at his party when, when I actually realised that I was gay. So it was, that, was, that was my eureka moment. Was it like, so, was it like Paul on the radio, Paul on the radio to, to Damascus? Yes. <laughs> you sat, you sat, Absolutely. Uh, you sat on the train yes. home and sort of said to yourself, oh, my God, oh, hell, I'm gay. <laughs> and I remember thinking on that train journey home, my life is never going to be the same from this moment on. I don't quite know what's coming next, but I can't go back from this. I've taken a step forward and I can never go back. I've met it's, two it's, guys it's, at this party and I can see myself in them. And suddenly I had a light bulb moment. It was, and also they Sorry, Frederick. I was going to say those guys were also flirting with you, so they, well, yes, were, they were also see, they were seeing you as a as a as a sexual person, and of course that automatically uh, 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 lights a fire in you, doesn't it? Because suddenly you're, you, you're allowing yourself to give yourself permission to feel that desire that you hadn't done before. This is so interesting. I have a friend who um uh, uh, who went to uh, who when he thought he was he was also in a straight relationship when he thought he was gay he went to Amsterdam and hired a, a night with an escort so that he could have sex with the escort so that he could find out if that's something he wanted. And another friend and I have done this myself. He went out into a park at night not to go cruising, ironically, but to simply stand and shout, "I am gay." to simply actually hear himself say the words out loud. And certainly in your account, it feels that there was, there was um, uh, certainly in your account, there's a sense in which you want to have that opportunity to say out loud, I'm a gay man. And that's such a big moment, isn't it? Absolutely. But that moment that when I dis discovered that I was gay at that party, I had to come back to my wife and family and pretend that yeah. everything was normal. That was the yeah. best Oscar-winning performance I have ever, ever put on. But here's the thing, Frederick, I didn't know you then, but if you were somebody who was departmentalizing your life, do you not think that you could have actually continued to be among your children, to look after them? to be a hard-working, devoted father, husband, and, and to still not have to reveal anything that might possibly indicate the truth. In fact, you may have been even more careful not to have done anything that might, may have given the game away. I agree. But my barrier was up. I was super cautious not to, to give anything away 
So I was on my guard now because I thought, I don't know what people are seeing. You know, when you see these movies and you have someone's on a train and, and someone looks across and they can read the other person's mind. I felt like yes. that. I, I thought someone could be reading my mind. I can't even think about that. I can't look at that person. So yes. no, I, yes. I was super, super, super cautious. But There's I a brilliant out. Uh, tell me about that. So yeah, I got caught out because during that next year, when I knew that I was going to, my only option was to was to come out and make this huge life change. I was yeah trying to get my head around this. I wasn't mentally or emotionally strong enough to do it at that time, but I knew that I would have to. But I also knew that I had to keep this together. I had to keep it together. The next Christmas at my work's Christmas party. There was a, a rather drunk Australian girl from the reception team who came over yes. after a few drinks and asked me if I was gay. Right. I felt like I'd been hit by a thunderbolt because this was the one thing that I said to no I hadn't told another living soul, and a stranger yes. comes and asks me the question that I fear most. And of course, if she if she notices that, then presumably in your mind, everybody has noticed. Well, that's it. Clearly, yes. I've dropped my guard. Now everyone can see my cover's been blown. What yeah, do I do I now? That, I, I that's, was in that's... panic mode at that point. Yes, there's a brilliant lecture by a drag queen called Panty Bliss, in, and she talks about, as gay people, we check ourselves so that when we're a car, we're, we're with a group and a, a group of lads comes in a car down the road and they roll down the, the windscreen and shout faggot, unconsciously we're looking at each other to check to see that we haven't been the one being the most gay. <laughs> yes, we check ourselves. And I think that's something we di I did. I recognise all of this. Who, who knows? How do they know? Am I effeminate? Am I did this? Am I that? You know, all of those stereotypes around what is is acceptable or what is not in terms of, you know, um, being gay, which of course is a form of internalised homophobia. Yes, of course it is. Um, of course it is. And but also, I, that, and I couldn't run the risk that my cover had been blown too early because I wasn't ready. Yes. I wasn't ready to, to, Did, to, to tell anyone and, and make that change. I was still in the, um, I'd gone through the decision phase, but I was in the operational, how am I, How can I possibly make this work phase? But I don't want Christ, to upset. Yeah, I don't want to upset, Christ, I don't upset you, the apple cart. Not now. Yeah, you were, in Christ, you were in crisis management. I was. Yes. I was. So I said um, to her, I did, actually, interesting enough, I didn't say to this girl, I'm not gay. My response was, actually, I'm married. Yes. So from that, yes. she then assumed, because in those days, only heterosexual people could get married. So she said, yes. oh, I'm really sorry. She said, it's just, she said, she said you're, such, you're a lovely guy and you're, you're such fun. You remind me of some of my friends in Sydney. And, and I just kind of laughed it off. I said, thank you. That's a real compliment. Yes. Yes. I yes. couldn't wait to get away. That's interesting. That's interesting. You wanted to you wanted to ma manage the situation, control the situation, because uh, that's your job as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a employee, and that somehow our sexual desires and our, our deep, deep rooted need to be authentic can somehow be managed. Given yes, all this, absolutely, because I was doing this. Whatever this plan was going to look like, it was on my terms 
on my timeline. I, I yeah. was, but I wasn't prepared for that either. So not only did she catch me out, I hadn't even thought about that being a possibility. And if that's a possibility, if someone says something, what am I going to do? I was totally ill-prepared for that comment. So tell, you, tell our audience what you finally decided to do in terms of your marriage and how you carried that out. I decided to leave my wife and my two children and start a gay life. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And the day I left was the um, was absolutely, yeah, the most difficult day of my life to, to this very day. Making that decision was so difficult. Um, I'm not going to go into the, the, the small, the detail at this stage, but what I am going to say is I did things on that day that I'm not particularly proud of. That, that absolutely wasn't my finest moment. Well, this is interesting because it's the one part of your story that, that I, when I read, I was not, not shocked because I recognised a lot of this behaviour, but it felt, ironically, it felt like that the manner in which you left could contribute towards ongoing issues because you left quite suddenly, absolutely. didn't you? I left quite suddenly, um, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I just want to say before I go into the detail, this was also the hardest chapter of the book to write. Yeah. Because yes. I'm 20 years on, I'm still carrying the shame of that day. I've tried to work yes. through it, but it's still there. And I yes. was working with a coach and a counsellor during the writing process, and yes. I wrote the book chronologically. I left that chapter out and said to him, I'm not sure I can write this. I said, all I can do is write the rest of the book, get to the end, and then see whether I've got the strength to go back and revisit that day and document it. In the end, I did have the strength, but it was written after everything else and then inserted. That makes absolute, makes absolute so sense. So much emotional so, strength. Well, the well, the invitation is just to describe as much as you feel comfortable with about it, because I do think there are things that we can learn from your experience. And I do recognize some of my own shame and guilt in some of the some of what happened. But you do, I don't want you to, you know, we're not, we're not here to judge. No, thank you. Thank you. And, and I think that's really important because I don't think any yes. of us are in a position to judge anybody else. Now, I have yes. pe had people come to me and say, actually, I don't like the way you handled that situation or you could have done that better or yes. I would have done it differently. And my response yes. is always, I did the best I could do with the emotional tools I had at that time. Yes, yes. And don't judge me because you, only someone wearing my shoes knows yes. how I felt. Yes. So I'd, I'd analyze this. I'd analysed this for weeks, months, how, the, how my leaving was going to be. I'd run this through my head a million times. I'd laid awake at night after night going through this process. My thoughts were, I'm not a coward, so I actually don't want to take the easy way out. I could get on a, on a plane to America, change my name, 
and never be heard of again. I, I think it was easier 20 years ago to do that. Um, that's one option. I could just run and, and, and disappear. Yes. I'm actually not a coward. I trying to minimize the pain to my wife and my kids because I know whatever I'm going to do is going to destroy the family life. Yeah. So I'm trying to save them, protect them, I guess. It seems a funny, I guess it seems funny for me to say this, bearing in mind that I'm, I'm going to cause them pain. But I was trying to, in my head, I'm trying to minimize the amount of pain. When I look back now, actually the pain was so great that nothing was ever going to yeah. minimize that. But that's not... Fred, Frederick, Frederick I complete, completely understand because I was making the same, not ridiculous, I was making the same mental gymnastics in my own mind. So I decided that I didn't want a showdown. I didn't want to have a massive fight with my wife when I told her in front of my kids. I could see this scene unfolding like a movie. So I tell her I'm leaving. I tell her I'm gay because that, that will come out. She's screaming. I say, I'm, I need to go. I've packed a few things. I'm going. As I walk towards the front door, the kids are screaming and hanging off yeah. my legs. Daddy, don't go. Daddy, don't go. And I'm thinking, I can't, I can't do that. That, to me, is my worst nightmare. Yeah. So that's what I need to try and avoid. Yeah. I take a deep breath now. So what I did, I decided I was going to go quietly. So I was, I was deceitful. I, and I'm not proud when I say this. I was deceitful. My wife and I both worked in the city. We went to work on that day like normal. We went to work together. She didn't, well, she never said that she worked out there was anything wrong. She got off the tube, the stop before me. I stayed on the tube. I went one stop further on, got off the train, changed the platform, and I went back home. Yeah. I packed my stuff up while she was at work. She thought I was at work. I wasn't. I'd taken the day off. I packed my stuff up. I walked around that house took a few little personal possessions. I wrote a note to my children, which actually took me four, four goes because I was crying so much. The ink kept running on the paper. It took me four attempts to write the letter that I put in an envelope. And actually, to this day, I don't know whether they ever got that letter. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. And I left and I drove to Peter's. And yes. I called my wife at the end of the afternoon when I knew she'd finished work and told her that I had left. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah, even when I say it, it sounds so dreadful and it sounds so callous and it sounds so cold-hearted. But at the time, it was the only way I could get through that. Well, also, I have the benefit of reading about how you've been dealing with other family situations. And, you know, we can't ignore that there was a family context out of which this came, you know, um, and we will we will come on to talk talk a little bit about that. I have, I have a question for you, which is my way of trying to is try, uh, trying to learn from this experience. How would you 
we've talked about not wanting to judge each other's actions and yet obviously going through something like this and the consequences have obviously you've thought about this a lot what would you say to somebody who's going through the same thought pattern now about dealing with the end of a marriage what would you, would you say anything to them uh, Frederick or would you would would there be things that you would say in your experience this works out better than that is there anything that you might want to say to somebody? I'm definitely not going to judge, and I'm definitely not going to say. And actually, I've had people say to me that was the most awful way to deal with that situation. And I agree that uh, absolutely, absolutely, um, I'm ashamed of, of, of what I did. But when I look back now, I was on the verge of a mental breakdown, and I didn't realise yeah. that at the time. So yes. I was really, and, I, and I've used this term in the book, I was in survival mode. And that yes, was you the did. I made, it, I made way, a note of that. That was the only way I felt that I planned that departure like a military operation. I felt like a secret agent. I had so many secrets that I was carrying for those last couple of weeks. I planned what I was going to do. I'd booked the day off work. I knew what time that train got in. I knew how long that would take me to get back to my house and how many hours I got before someone could discover me because the neighbors saw I was there. And I thought, well, if they ring my, my wife and say, oh, why is Frederick home from work today? My cover could be blown at any time. So I needed to pack my stuff up within a couple of hours. So yeah. I would say to, to anyone, do what you have to do. Don't, don't let others judge you. You need to get through this. So what do you need to do to survive? Yeah. One last question, and maybe this is the most difficult question to answer. Do you feel that the nature of that has influenced the way in which your family has now responded to you subsequently? It definitely hasn't helped. It definitely hasn't helped. But right. my daughter has said to me in recent years, actually, Dad, we'd still be where we are today. Whatever had happened 20 years ago and however that day had worked out, everything that came after that would have been the same. Yes. yes. And I speak as someone right. who, there's, there's a sense in which there's a, a huge amount of um, um, anger, obviously, that seems to be focused on the nature of how it happened rather than on acknowledging what you were going through. And in some um, respects, it's, my... easy, it's, easy, it's easy to be angry, isn't it, than actually have to accept something, a truth about your yeah, husband absolutely or, absolutely yeah. yes 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 and, and you know i i i had a situation where i buried my father and then 10 days later my children said they didn't want to speak to me so i i absolutely share uh with you some of that awful sense of um uh of 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 sort of consequences of of the, the the breakup and the divorce and how that plays out in in ways that you just don't anticipate i agree I agree. Thank you. Thank you for talking about that. I think that that's, that, that shared experience will will really connect with people. Let's talk about your introduction. You've got a quarter of an hour. Let's talk about your introduction into the gay world because the second half of your book, if I described you, but the first half of your book is you dropping into a trough, into an ocean, and the second half is you rising like Poseidon. <laughs> <laughs> like a phoenix like, from the ashes. Like like Ursula Andress at Doctor Who in your, in, your, in your super furry bikini. <laughs> I, should, like, like, I should be saying like Daniel Craig, shouldn't I? <laughs> you should be saying like Daniel Craig, absolutely. Daniel Craig. Um, and and you and 
what I loved about the book was that you talk about your introduction to the gay world. And yes, you may have had your cock goggles on and you may have been rushing around the sweetie shop. But actually, there's something really sweet and tentative about the way in which you come up to London, rent a room, meet some friends. I thought your description of going to heaven was fantastic. Um, and all through it, there's a sense in which I can, I can feel, I can sense the tension in you slowly starting to ease. Um, and I just wondered if you, what was the, was there any particular moment that you thought, Luminel, I really am gay and just felt really comfortable, <laughs> com comfortable in that? Because I think for me, the self-acceptance, it wasn't just me dealing with the breakdown of my marriage and my children, family and all of that. You know, I, I don't know exactly when it was. I think it may have been walking into a bar or sitting down or going for a meal. And that's suddenly I think, oh, my goodness, we're all gay here. I can yes. be who I am. Was there a moment for you like that, Frederick? Yes, I think I think it was that first night in a club uh, in heaven under the arches in Villiers Street. I think it was there then. As you say, being surrounded by gay men and women, but predominantly men, and thinking they're like me. I'm amongst my own kind. Yes. And that is so, yes. that is so, so powerful. Because at that point, I've got now, got, I've got nothing to hide. Um, I've got no barriers to put up. I've got nothing. Yes. I don't, I'm not checking myself now because I don't not need to. Not checking yourself. Yeah. I can have a drink and I can just totally relax and I can be me. I'm, I'm not dad. I'm not, I'm not husband. I'm not employee. I'm I'm not manager. I'm I'm just me now. Yes, yes. Let's talk a little bit about Switchboard because I think Switchboard, and I want to plug Switchboard uh, uh, on the podcast. LG uh, the LGBT plus Switchboard um, telephone number oh three hundred three three zero oh six three zero slogan calm words when you need the most. But um, you uh, went and volunteered for Switchboard, and so have I volunteered for Switchboard. Tell me a little bit about how that um, validated your, 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 your sense of yourself as a gay man. Well, that, that absolutely changed my life. What I realised very, very early on in my, in my coming out journey is that the scenes of so the bars and the clubs were very, very sexualized, And that if you met guys, it was about sex, it was about hooking up. And I didn't yeah. have that many gay friends. So I wanted to make friends off the scene. And I thought the only way I'm going to be able to do that is, is to volunteer, to volunteer for a gay charity where I can meet people where there's a shared interest and it isn't sex. It's something else. Yes. And yes. I absolutely love that. And three or four of the people I met on my, on my course there uh, are my best friends today. That, that as a lifelong change, one I will never, ever, ever forget. And, and this is the point, going to Switchboard and, and going through their counselling service and, and, and being on the phones, because you were an ex-married man who'd been through that experience, one of the main calls, one of the main questions I always dealt with at Switchboard or deal with is somebody ring up and said, I've just had sex with a man, does that mean I'm gay? Uh, that's one of the main questions. And of course, as you rightly point out in the book, we're not supposed to give closed answers. We're supposed to respond, what do you think? And um, I think that but coming from a, from, a, from a background where you've been on this extraordinary journey uh, means that you, you have a natural empathy and curiosity that I think 
comes across very strongly. Thank um, you. And I was always happy. And I know it actually wasn't quite fitting in with the rules, as you say. You weren't, uh, you're not allowed to give any personal information either, are you? No, you're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not supposed to say anything about yourself. But inevitably, on some courses, you do, don't you? Because, Absolutely. You know, so I, will I share dealt with that. it. Yes, I, I, I would as well. I was married. And I don't need to give any more information. And because often they would say, oh, so how did that work out for you? And, and I'm not going to pick that up. <laughs> Because I, that, I don't want to go down that road. Actually, it's about them. So I want to turn it back to them. And I would say everyone's journey is different. But I just want to yes. let you know that I was married, so I understand. That's, yes. that's I think, the point I want to get across to them. I think that's a really important point because I would, I, and as, as a result of Rainbow Dads, I've had some guys contact me and say, I'm still married. Can I have my can I have my cake and eat it? I hate that expression. That's not what they say. But they say, is it possible for me to have some contact with 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 guys but also maintain a marriage and when i first came out there was this thing called the closed loop which is this american idea of of of, of a guy having a male lover with the with the sanction of his wife i i feel increasingly that it's really difficult to manage those sort of situations um but um i can hear in the voices of these guys the same sense of desperation of, of wanting to to try and keep things as they were uh, and not have to face up to this huge elephant and so i don't want to i don't want to say you know i'm sorry but i do think the writing's on the wall i probably do feel that in most cases but obviously i want to try and give you want to try and give people a sense that they can make their own decisions and Absolutely. feel empowered empowered Absolutely. and also and so, sorry, go ahead. You also made friends with 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 with, um, with Annie, and I think that's brilliant because I do think there's a big divide between gay men and lesbians, and I think that you've absolutely um, proven otherwise. Tell us a bit more about that relationship because that seems like a really important one for you. Absolutely, and Annie and I are still best friends today. She's uh, such an important part of my life. She's been an amazing role model, and she's been there through the whole of my coming out. Um, we we bought a house together back, um, oh back in the early 2000s. I mean, that's how close we were. We bought a house together. Um, that lasted, I think, th three or four years. Uh, an absolutely amazing time. So um, I, I needed so – I, I realize now when I look back how much I, I, I needed to have somebody because I was dealing with so much. I was dealing yes. with the divorce. I was dealing with my own sexuality. I was the new boy out on the on the scene, trying to learn the, were, the, the rules of engagement. You were fresh meat, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thirty-four, not twenty-four. I wasn't a twink. I, I, you I wasn't were, that. You were you were you were vintage, though. You were vintage. <laughs> <laughs> so Annie kept yes. my feet on the ground, and and she gave me a sense of normality in my life. She was also very happy to go out partying and. She was a volunteer at the switchboard. So we did a lot of things together. But she definitely gave me, um, she was my gay family and still is. Because I think a and lot of a people very, have, an, have their, their birth family, but they also yes. have a gay family, which sometimes is stronger than, 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 than their real family because, because often that's the only one they've got and, and the but only also, one they also can rely on. If you choose your friends, you have a, respons you have a responsibility to to that friendship yes you know yes. a family is families 
uh, teach you other sorts of lessons. But I think particularly in, in the LGBTQ plus world, we create our own families, but we are therefore more responsible for maintaining and sustaining those relationships. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Let, we, we're coming to the last sort of section of the of 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 our chat, and I'd like to talk a little bit about the title of the book because it's it's really poignant and pertinent. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your relationship with your father and how you've tried to break that cycle with your own son. Because for me, the most painful part of the book was the way in which your father rejected you. Speaking as a parent, I can't, I just don't understand it. I just don't, yeah, I mean, that is a judgment, and I'm sorry about that, Frederick, but that's, you know, it's, you know, oh, I, I have two children, and uh, and you, you seem to be so magnanimous, really, in the book. But I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, because I know you're trying to repair relationships with your son. I yes. think there's anybody out there, list, anybody out there listening who's going through something similar, you might be able to to provide some words of comfort or wisdom about how you might be able to achieve that. Well, I can't make it up with my dad now because he's passed. So that's, yeah. um, and I'd had a big falling out with my dad and we hadn't spoken for several years. This is while I was still married. Then I tried to make it, because I, and also I knew then that I found out he was sick um, and I tried to make it up with him at the end of his life. Um, because I couldn't bear the thought of of, um, of him dying and, uh, and and me not seeing him and, and trying to sort out this, what was a ridiculous situation and one that should never have occurred and just trying to move on in, in his last, in his last little bit of time. But he refused to see me. I wrote a letter to him and my mum and I asked to see my dad and my dad had cancer uh, and he refused to see me. He was admitted to hospital and he wouldn't let me visit and after he passed away, he asked for me not to go to the funeral. He left that message with my mum. I can't. And my dad died in March, and I came out in February. So my dad died six weeks after I came out, and I'd already turned my life completely upside down. It was definitely so the you, most difficult year of my life. I was, I was, I was going to say you were basically that you were you were having the full flush of the most, probably the most stressful events you can possibly imagine in your yep. life. I'd moved house, yeah. end of the relationship, death of a parent, all within about six weeks. Blimey. Blimey. So I tried but to make you it up with my you dad. Made up with your, you made, yeah. I made it up with yeah, my mum. I did make it up with Brilliant. my mum. And we rebuilt that relationship over the following Fantastic. 10 years. And Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I, it, it was great that I had the chance to do that. My mum said, because she didn't contact me in those three years when I wasn't speaking to my dad. And when I when I challenged her about this afterwards, she said, um, as a Victorian wife, she said, I took the vow to obey your father and he told me not to speak to you. And so I didn't. Wow. I, I, like you, I don't understand that. My, my urge and my love as a parent supersedes anything else. So actually, it's, it's... I don't know how my mum lived with that. Yes. Well, to her credit, she, I mean, I can see how it must have been so painful for oh, her. Oh, absolutely. What about, what about, what about with your son, Jack? Yes. So what I've you, had no so contact what are you hoping with my son to, yeah. since he was 18. Right. At 18, he said he didn't want to have anything to do with me. He was an adult 
And I thought it's a phase. He's just going to throw his toys out the pram and in six months we'll all be back to back to normal. Yes, anyway, he's course. now 32 and I haven't seen him. So that's, no, nothing. I send Christmas it's... cards, birthday cards. Nothing comes back. He's got married. He's got two children. I've been no part, yes. played no part in his life. But you are still reaching out. You're still making that gesture. I'm never going to stop doing that. I'm still his dad, no. and I want to, I want to repair that because I don't want to yeah. be in the situation that I was with my own father. That there's time to Absolutely. sort this out, and we're and actually we're all missing out. He's missing out. So am I. So yes. are those grandchildren. There's no winner in this. We're all losers. Yes. yes. But it well, has to be his time. Not it can't be on my. It has to be when he's ready. And uh, and I, that that hasn't been understand. up to now. I do understand. Mm. Well. We're now coming to the end. I just very quickly want to plug uh, uh, Frederick's book, Fathers and Sons, which you can find on Amazon. Is that right, Frederick? It's on Amazon Kindle. That's correct. And it's available yes. um, worldwide. Brilliant. Also, Rainbow Dance is up. If anybody felt like lobbing us a bit of shrapnel, that will be marvellous. We're about to start recording our second uh, series. Um uh, and uh, we're looking forward to a whole new set of interviews. Uh, uh, Rainbow Dads has made a real connection with all sorts of organisations in the UK and the US, uh, Family Equality, the NASA Foundation, FLAG, Transparents. So we're absolutely, we feel very privileged and honoured to do this work. Um, you're absolutely right. Gino says we need to break the family cycles. Yes, that's absolutely mm -hmm. right. Somebody once said you can only... You can't, you can't promise to deal with all of your baggage, but you have every right to be with somebody who's trying to deal with your baggage. Hmm. Um, and certainly, Frederick uh, uh, had a great... You had not have baggage. You had a whole Louis Vuitton <laughs> travel companion, didn't you? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, with matching accessories, yeah. <laughs> of course, matching accessories. Um, <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, Frederick. I found it wonderful. I thank have, you thank very you much. Thank you so much. Thank you brave and um i uh want to thank podbean again for hosting this and um uh, i have a website www.nickmcinerney.co.uk if you want to contact me thank you very much everybody for listening i appreciate it thank you thank you absolutely thank you so much nick thanks frederick and thank you everyone for joining us for this live stream rainbow dads live episode with nicholas mcinerney and special guest frederick davies if you joined late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters or today's sessions, you can replay the program on the Storytelling Podcast Week channel. Storytelling Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience with Podbean Live, where podcasts come to life. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. And to get your first 30 days of hosting for free, use the code STORY. Thank you again to Nicholas McInerney and special guest Frederick Davies. Thank you. Thank for joining you. Us. Take care. Thank you. Take care, guys. Absolutely. Take care.